Listener Production. Last night, I lay on the floor attempting to follow a yoga class on my iPad while simultaneously watching Firefly on Netflix. My husband, also multi-screening, was watching surfing videos on his phone and half-heartedly tuning into the TV. We're consuming more content than ever before, with each medium receiving less of our exclusive focus. But the movies? I can't remember the last time I went. Something about it feels positively quaint or, like, old-fashioned. 2020 Australian box office revenue is predicted to be about a quarter of the 2019 figure. That is an astronomical drop in attendance. Any place that's unnecessary for people to gather and linger has now been banned. Cinemas, movie theatres, all of them will need to be shut. With most of us stuck at home because we felt safer and some because we weren't allowed out, cinemas stood empty most of the year. Mark Fennell loves cinema. Well, my friend, you're due for a shot. It's a man. He's big, all right, but it's a man. Coming this way. can't see us. Mark Fennell. Who is he? That movie guy. Perhaps best known from when he was that movie guy on Triple J, he's now host of television's The Feed. If you could go back in time and talk to Harrison Ford before you made the first Star Wars movie, what would you tell him? Shut up. And Mastermind. I'm Mark Fennell, and this is Mastermind. Mark and I caught up to talk about the future of movies, the rise and rise and rise of Netflix, and what Mark has planned next. The Weekend List is also on its way, but first, here's my conversation with Mark Fennell. Mark, it feels like about a hundred years, I think, since I sat down in a cinema. I think the last time was a little after World War II, and I can't <laughs> see myself returning. I can't see myself going back anytime soon. Has the pandemic killed the movies? Uh, yeah, actually it has. And it's just a question of whether or not the movie industry is willing to recognise it yet, but I think it definitely has. So there was a thing that was sort of happening even before the pandemic. Then there were still kids movies and family movies, but there was a whole thick swathe of content in the middle, which was like the grown-up movie. So, you know, example would be like, I don't know, A Few Good Men or something like that. That sort of movie stopped being made. And that was something that was really defined that I noticed as a film critic. And what actually was happening was at the same time, TV was getting better. So all the grown-up drama and all the grown-up comedy was moving to TV. And so the only things that were sort of keeping cinemas afloat were massive spectacle blockbusters that you actually had to see at the cinema. Now, COVID has happened and all of the big studios, so your Disney, your Warner Brothers and all the rest of them, they have all recognised the value they had with their back catalogue. And that they were monetizing that by basically licensing their content to Netflix. But at a certain point, and we've all sort of experienced this now, which is they've gone, hold on, we can own that relationship with the viewer, we will set up our own streaming services. And so when the pandemic hits and the last thing that's holding cinemas afloat is big spectacle movies is not an option, they suddenly had an opportunity. And that opportunity was we've poured 70 to $100 million into this blockbuster. We are losing money every minute we don't drop it let's send it out to the streaming service. And they all did it a slightly different way. So, you know, you saw Milan go to Disney Plus and you'll see um, a whole bunch of things that would have gone in cinemas in the US now going on HBO Max. And because of that, 
the cinema, particularly in the US, which is still a significant part of how those monies, uh, those organisations get their money, is in my view more or less dead. Like it'll become, it'll become like a delicacy, right? It'll become like a thing that you go do occasionally, and it'll only be if it comes with great wine or something to get rid of the kids. You know what I mean? Like it'll be, it'll become a a real sometimes food. And I think the age of it being like a regular popcorn thing, and this is a controversial view, I think that age has passed or or it will never go back to being what it looked like before. So I suppose my next question is, we've seen then how COVID has almost sped up, I suppose, that shift to the streaming services and away from cinema. But is the pandemic also going to change the kind of movies and TV shows we want to watch? You know, are we all going for the light and fluffy escapism stuff? Are we going to be hit with a tsunami of films about viruses? (laughs) It's actually funny that that hasn't happened. When the pandemic launched, my wife and I, a whole bunch of our friends recommended this this gritty reboot of War of the Worlds that came out of like a bunch of European broadcasters and we started watching it and it was so traumatising. Like it was like anything about a worldwide disaster was just like it was way too triggering. Mm. But I actually think that yeah. the, the the thing that you were saying earlier about it being more warm and fuzzy, I suspect that might be true, which is so interesting, right, because that's not what's happened in previous disasters, right? So in the wake of 9-11, you saw a huge kind of array of apocalyptic things come out. You saw the much more gritty and darker view of the world. Like James Bond suddenly became a gritty, darker post 9-11 James Bond. You saw um, the rise of things like Jason Bourne and you saw a thick swathe of of zombie movies as well. Like cinema got darker and angrier after 9-11. That hasn't quite happened here, and I and I what I suspect will happen is it'll be a re- people will revert back to warm and fuzzy because we'll sort of need it. Mm, you fell in love with movies as a kid. What were you like when you were a kid, and what was your favourite movie? Um, I've always been a nerd. <laughs> really <laughs> surprised to precisely no one. Yeah, I know, shocking, right? I don't think I was a terribly happy kid. Actually, I was thinking about this the other day, and I think. I never quite knew where I belonged, you know, like I'm, you know how people break up into cliques in the school and I never really had a group and and I was thinking about how like at every stage, whether it was primary school up to high school, I never had a group and, you know, even like with ethnicity and things like that, like my, the schools I went to like broke down into like ethnic groups pretty like readily, like the Islander kids were here, the white kids were here, the Asian kids were there. And because I'm a mix of a bunch of things, I don't look or particularly sound like anything, even though I'm a a mixture of a bunch of cultures, movies and, you know, being able to get lost in, in fictional worlds and I'm not unique in this, was really powerful. It was a really great way of kind of letting your imagination run wild. And I guess whilst at the time I wasn't super thrilled with it, um, it's paid off. Hey, <laughs> I can't complain at how, how it's played off in time. But, yeah, I wouldn't say I was an overly happy kid at, at all. So what were the fictional worlds that you liked to disappear into? You need to promise not to laugh at me if I tell you. I can't promise that. <laughs> I was a mad Star Trek nerd. Jamila? No, of course you were. (laughs) To boldly go where no man has gone before. I'm hosting Mastermind at the moment and uh, I did it as a celebrity contender last year and my specialist subject was Star Trek The Next Generation. And even though I love it, I'm pretty sure I still bond. (laughs) The thing about it is I can really credit a lot of my, certainly my, my film critic background and also like now as a filmmaker person who makes documentaries and podcasts and stuff like that, 
I have to credit Star Trek a little bit with it because when you are obsessed with something like that as a kid, you go quite deep and suddenly you've got really very well-formed opinions on plot arcs and characters and themes and things like that, which, you know, those sorts of opinions and, and generating a sense of taste around what you think does work and what you think doesn't work, that informs everything I do now. And really everything that I do has an element of storytelling in it. And Star Trek can claim credit for that. Well done to you, Star Trek. We raise a glass. <laughs> Mark, you probably first became well known as that movie guy on Triple J and you were pretty young when that came about. So I wanted to ask, how did you tackle the nerves of meeting and interviewing some really big names? And you still do today, but you're a grown up now. <laughs> how did you do that when you were just a kid? Um... That's a good point. I didn't feel like I was young when I was doing, because my first job in television, I was signed when I was 18 and I was 19 when I started the movie show and then when that ended, I went on to Triple J. So I, I started really young and in, I think when you start a job in the public eye really young, sometimes you don't process how young you are. You're just trying to get on with it a little bit and trying to not make yeah. an absolute fool of yourself. In terms of meeting very famous people, one thing I would say about interviewing very famous people is the biggest mistake people make is to imagine that you're interviewing a very, very famous person. The trick to it is you're interviewing a person and the fact that they're very, very famous is only a part of their story. Like I always say the trick to a good interview is time, either time in the interview to fish around and find something new or time beforehand to really research them and know exactly where you want to go. And, you know, in effect, you, you want both, but you usually you have to settle for one or the other. If I ever felt pressure with a, a very famous person interview, the pressure wasn't the meeting of the person. It was, can I get something out of this tiny allotted amount of time I have that is going to be genuinely interesting to them, to me and to the audience? You have got to do the work to make sure that you they have a good time and they and they feel comfortable revealing something authentic about themselves. And the most successful moments have been when, you know, there's always a moment when they go, ah, oh, this is a different kind of conversation. And so suddenly Mark Ruffalo talks about the moment he, he nearly died. You have a tumour on the left side of your head, behind your ear, and you have to deal with it immediately. I felt like I was going to die. It was that, like, serious. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis starts talking about overcoming addiction. The single greatest accomplishment of my human life was arresting my addiction to opiates and alcohol. Those are the moments where it's like, it's genuinely interesting, but it's also undeniably honest, and the truth just sounds different. Mark, you're a phenomenal producer of work across a whole lot of mediums. Uh, in the industry, you're very much known as the person who's always got about 1,100 projects <laughs> on the go at once. How do you do that? And I, I'm not asking that in a in a sort of a, a wow sense. Genuinely, I want to know, how do you keep that constantly evolving to-do list clear in, in your head? Um, I do keep a lot of lists. I've always had two jobs, actually. And I, you know, so the movie show, you know, I started when I was 19 and it was acts before I turned 21. And so I remember thinking to myself quite early on, like, oh, okay, if I want to do this thing, right, if I want to be in front of a camera or a microphone, I'm going to need to sort of manage the risk. And so that meant I always had two jobs at once. And 
the other underlying force is that I like to do lots of different things. You know, there are, I love to do long form storytelling in podcast form. And so luckily, you know, I've had partners to do that with. And at the same time, there are, there's an elegance to telling stories in audio that is different to the way I tell a story in, on TV. And I like that I get the opportunity to do both. So I'm working on a lot of stuff at any one time. And that actually helps because one project can help inform the other. Like being an editor, because most of the TV stuff I've done for the feed over the years, most people don't realise this, but I actually cut most of it. I edit most of it. And I think being an editor makes you a better TV presenter, right? Because you know what bits you're going to cut out and you know what bits are unusable. So I think having different jobs and different diverse skills can actually enrich the collection of jobs. You do seem to have this drive to always be doing the next thing, the more interesting thing, the better thing, the bigger thing. And there's a real commitment and, you know, sense of hard work that that comes with that. Where, where do you think that comes from? I was not hugged enough as a child. You were not <laughs> hugged enough. No, tell me seriously. Where did it come from? Is it a, is it a cultural thing? Um... Yes and no. So better answer would be yes, but perhaps not in the way you think. So mum is Indian and Singaporean and has um, what we both like to lovingly joke as an Asian work ethic. And I've always been like, that definitely comes from mum. But dad, who is the white side of the family, he ran a small business for the entirety of my childhood, right? And he was a, uh, he was a self-employed photographer and he, you know, he did that and he was a TAFE teacher. And both of my parents, um, whilst wildly odd personalities, they always worked their asses off. And I think I have to credit that to them because I always saw them working their asses off. Yeah, like I have to say, like my parents' work ethic is a really defining feature. And, you know, I hope that the model that I'm giving my kids at the moment I'm hoping that I'm getting the balance better so that they can see me working, they can see what goes into it, but I'm also making time for them and making and also bringing them along and, and letting them experience our work as well. You know, in lockdown and th- stuff like that, we, we um, you know, we have a sound desk that I, I usually record interviews with at home and... I would do these things where I'd, we'd load up sound and the panels and uh, and music and I'd, we'd read storybooks together and the kids would be able to fire off the different music cues and sounds. So they they kind of got a familiarity with what with what we do. And I remember when we did that, like when I was a kid growing up, I used to go out and help my dad on photography shoots and I used to, you know, carry equipment and, and bits. And I remember that actually being some of my fondest memories growing up. You're the new host of Mastermind Australia. Are the kids going to be watching? It's actually the only show I do that the kids do watch. Whenever I'm on the project, they do tend to turn it on, but it's like my kids are four and six. There's a lot of concepts that need explaining. Whereas Mastermind, even though they don't, like it is undeniably like the most serious and hardest quiz in Australia, but even though they don't understand the questions, they understand what's going on. And that, it's so funny. Like I ca- after the first episode of it aired, I came home and, you know, Sophie, my daughter's like, your time starts now. <laughs> it was just very funny. <laughs> I was like, so they, they get the iconography of it. Well, I think we need to get you in the market for the next <laughs> guest spot on Bluey and then you will seriously have won their love and adoration forever. Mark, thank you so much for being on The Weekend Briefing. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Mastermind Australia is airing now at 6pm on weeknights on SBS. And as Mark said, after a pandemic, I think we are all in the mood for some feel-good game show television. 
welcome to The Weekend List with Tate McGregor, where we tell you what to listen, do, see, watch, read, cook, whatever it might be this weekend. And Tate, you've got a listen that's related to our guest, Mark. Did you know Mark does a yearly wrap-up in sound? It's called Year in Sound, naturally, but it's kind of theatre of the mind. He uses music and news grabs to create an immersive world of the year that's been. It's an amazing wrap-up, and Mark does so well at weaving this into an absolute soundscape. Like a war zone. All the houses around me are gone. The disease has spread worldwide. Winning is easy. Losing is never easy. Not for me, it's not. I have also got a book for you. Growing Up Disabled in Australia has just come out. One in five Australians have a disability, including myself, yet disabled people are still underrepresented in the media and in literature. So Growing Up Disabled is the fifth book in this highly acclaimed best-selling Growing Up series. It's got interviews with some really prominent Australians, including Senator Jordan Steele-John and Paralympian Isis Holt. And it's also got more than 40 original pieces by writers with a disability or a chronic illness. So if you are one of those people, it feels nice to be seen on the page. And if you're not, how about taking a bit of a walk in someone else's shoes? Speaking of other stories, we're going to travel across the world into more culture for going to do and see every year the Alliance Francaise Film Festival takes place at Palace Cinemas and it kicks off this week. I recommend Aline, which is a biopic of Quebec's biggest export, in my opinion, Celine Dion. I'm all about French cinema. Also, we're into getting back to the movies after our chat with Mark. So enjoy that this weekend, everyone. That's it for the weekend briefing. The briefing will be back on Monday morning, 6am, bright and early in your headphones with Tom and Annika. Listener.